Open your Bibles, if you would. Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I do have to say, with regards to last week, if you were here last week, or you listened to the podcast last week, and you found yourself at the end of the message saying, I'm really not sure what in the world he was talking about. You're not alone. Some got quite a bit out of that, I'm told. Um, others were left quite confused, and I take full responsibility for that. I managed to take something that was somewhat confusing and make it really confusing. So, um, And really, it's pretty simple. One of the things I really enjoyed was as I asked, because I was deeply concerned that I had not effectively communicated last week, um, I asked some people you know, what they got about it. And a lot of them that didn't get the whole thing just got a little bit, actually had a better grasp on it than I communicated. It's about marriage, and it's about honoring our marriages and protecting our marriages. And if you're not married, not making being married what you're all about, but really being about whether you're married or not, being about serving Him and getting your focus on Him and His work, God's work in our life, and that being the really important thing. And that's not that complicated. I don't know why it was so hard last week. Anyway, that was last week. So this week, chapter 8. And if there is a chapter in Scripture that speaks to us right where we are and right where we culturally have been for more than 18 months now, uh, this would be it. So much out of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 has been written about and spoken about and preached about over the last 18 months, as the body of Christ has endeavored, and I don't just mean here, I mean all over the place, has endeavored to respond to the whole matter of the COVID pandemic, right? And what we have heard from this chapter is that the most important thing for us as the body of Christ is to respond in a way that expresses Christian love. And that's true. And that's accurate. And I don't really know of anyone who is sincere in their Christian faith that would say anything else. So if that's the case, why all the angst? And there has been serious tension within the body of Christ in this 18-month period. I mean, more than usual. There's almost always tension in the body of Christ. That seems to go with the turf. But the last 18 months have been especially challenging, significant disagreement and discord within the body of Christ, even though we should should be on the same page. And what this is, I believe, is a really good example because we've been talking about what's in this chapter, chapter 8, 1 Corinthians. Uh, it really is a good example of why it is so important when we're responding to an issue and we're looking at a passage of Scripture to really make sure that we go about it correctly. You know, we need to pay attention to the whole text, not just a few selected verses that we pull out. Uh, pay attention to what's happening in the text. Ask ourselves um, what is actually being said in the text and to place it in the context of the greater uh, passage of Scripture, in this case, the entire letter. And only after we've done that, attempt to bring it into the here and now. Because if we take any shortcuts, inevitably, invariably, there will be, there'll be problems. And we don't want to try to do that. So that's our plan this morning. Uh, we're going to read the text, the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses. Read the whole chapter. Um, we're going to ask the question, what in the world is going on here? Because it's a culturally different situation than ours. The actual situation they're dealing with is probably one that none of us are ever going to have to deal with. So it's a different setting. Um, look at what's actually said. Put it all in the context of what Paul's saying in the entire letter. And then ask the question, 
How does it speak to us? So having said all that, let's get to the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in the first verse. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Now therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, and some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Father, we thank you for your word this morning as we look to it, Father. Even though it speaks to a situation a lot different than what we face, What's happening here, Father, is so much like what we have faced here over the last 18 months and continue to face, Father. So we pray for your wisdom as we look to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is going on in Corinth? What's the thing with the meat and the idols and all that? Now, some of you may be familiar with this. It may be re repetitive for you, but it's really important to, um, to speak to it. Paul begins by saying, concerning things sacrificed to idols, right? Things literally offered to idols and consumed in the presence of the idol. Uh, it's another example of where Paul is giving us an answer and we don't have the question. That expression concerning things offered to idol, that's a way of, that Paul uses to point out, reference something they had communicated to him. They had written something or somebody had reported to him about the problem in the Corinthian church about the idols and things being sacrificed to idols, and people eating that, and what are we supposed to do? So we have Paul's answer, but not the exact question. So we have to take a few moments to kind of put the situation together and ask exactly what was the problem, right? It all surrounds... I'm just curious, how many... Of, I just want to know, I just kind of what we're dealing with here. How many are kind of familiar with what's going on here with the thing sacrificed to idols? A handful? Okay, we're talking about the Corinthian meat market, all right? And this, by the way, was not unique to Corinth. This situation would have been in any first century city or town in anywhere in the Roman Empire. When you went to the meat market, there was meat there that, in the words of one scholar, was used meat. Now I have your attention. Okay, used meat. And what they meant by that was some of the meat in the meat market would have, been, would have gotten there like we normally think of meat going to a meat market. Somebody would have raised it, they would have taken it to the market, slaughtered it, and put it out there in the non-refrigerated case. To this very day, the main meat market in Athens is largely unrefrigerated, but we're not going to talk about that. My office was above that by about eight floors on a hot day. Ooh. 
Anyway, that's totally off the subject. The meat would go to the market and be put there. But there was a lot of meat in the meat market that didn't get there that way. A lot of the meat in the market had gone to a pagan temple first. Because if somebody wanted to worship in that setting, if you wanted to go in a temple and worship your God, you went and you got the animal, whether, you know, sheep from a shepherd or whatever, or goat, or whatever, and you would take that to the temple. The animal would be slaughtered at the temple. The blood would be poured out in an offering. Some of the meat would be burned on some type of an altar or something. And, of course, that sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament. There are certain similarities, but that's where it stops. Because then the next thing would be the worshiper and the priest would sit down and they would eat some of the meat in the temple. And it was like they were having a meal with the God. Now, why would they do that? And again, this is where it's so distinct from the, from the offerings of the Old Testament. The offerings of the Old Testament were an expression of gratitude. Boom. The offerings in these pagan temples, you had to have a meal with the God because you had to win his favor or her favor in the case of a female deity. The pagan gods, totally distinct than the God we believe in, um, because they were really just like us. They were just like human beings with both our weaknesses and our strengths just amped way up, right? They were not necessarily nice, and they were not benevolent. And so if you needed something from your deity, let's say you're a farmer, you want your crops to grow, you want your God to bless your crops, you didn't just ask your God, please make my crops go, the answer is going to be no. Why should I? Why should I bother? You had to find a way to exercise a measure of influence over your God. You had to find a way to manipulate or maybe even exercise a little control over your God. And so you went to the temple, and what you in effect were doing was asking your God out to dinner and picking up the tab. You're schmoozing your God. That's pretty much what it came down to, right? Now, as an aside, you will notice a lot of Christians actually pray this way, but that's another subject. You had to win the influence of your God. And so you would go to the temple, make a sacrifice, have dinner with him or her. Then the rest of the meat that wasn't used went to the market. And it was sold. So you, as a Christian, go to the meat market. You want to buy you know, a roast or something, a leg of lamb, whatever it was. You don't know whether or not that leg came directly from the shepherd and their sheep or if it came from the temple. And that raised a huge issue for Christians. And we've got to remember, this is a setting, we're talking first century Corinth. There are no second generation Christians in this church. Everybody in this church is first generation. They either came out of Judaism with all of that and the overwhelming concerns about idolatry that that would have had and all the traditions involved, or have come right out of paganism, right out of the temple thing. So everybody is in this in this spectrum of process, they're on their journey coming to an understanding of how this Christian thing works, how our God is not just better than the other gods, he is the only God, and they're a bunch of frauds. They're all in process of that, okay? So this is a huge issue for the early church. How do we deal with the fact that going to the market to buy the meat that we need, we, we get tangled up in this pagan worship thing, okay? Well, there's a variety of ways a person could respond in that situation. If you just use a little imagination, you can come up with them. And there's hints of all of them in the text. One very obvious solution is just to say, simple, don't buy your meat at the market. Raise it yourself. 
or go right to the shepherd and buy your, you know, your sheep or your goat right there, or right to the, I don't know if they had ranchers in those, but go right to the person raising the cows and get your beef there. Bypass the market completely, and you're safe. That's a very reasonable solution. But that isn't the only reasonable solution because there's other issues involved. What if, for example, you are going to grill up you know, a steak and your neighbor who lives right next to you is somebody that you've been witnessing to and you're trying to win them out of their paganism. Now, you've got to understand too, culture is so different. We normally eat dinner in our culture or lunch or whatever with a relative degree of privacy, not in this culture. Because unless it's winter and it's cold, you're not eating inside your house. Where are you eating? Front yard, backyard, balcony, or roof. And when you're eating, front yard, backyard, balcony, or roof, so is everybody else. And this is a culture where, well, most folks are in everybody else's stuff all the time anyway. I was hoping Nikki Foles would be here and she could give me an amen from her Lebanese background. Everybody's in everybody else's stuff all the time. So what you're fixing for dinner, the neighbor knows. You may even be talking about it, you know, balcony to balcony or roof to roof. So I'm trying to witness to my neighbor and tell him what a bonus deal these pagan gods are. He thinks, even though I may have got the animal right from the shepherd, he thinks maybe I'm eating meat from the meat market that was offered to an idol. So this complicates my testimony like you wouldn't believe, right? So his option number two is don't eat meat at all. No meat. Fish are okay, right? Other than that, no meat. Door number two. Door number three. The idols are nothing. We know that. We know those temples, they're empty buildings. They might as well make warehouses out of them because the gods who occupy those buildings are nothing. We know that. So the food that's offered to the idol is not one bit different than the, than the stuff I buy you know, that hasn't been sacrificed or I raise my... It's the same food. So just eat it and get over with over it. All three of those positions can be arrived at very reasonably. There's a line of reasonable argumentation or reasonable thinking that would lead you to any one of those three very different answers, right? Now, the big issue is, can those three groups get along? Yes. It does complicate the church, you know, potluck a little bit, you know. But it's really, if you think about it, no different, although the reason is different, it's really not that much different than the whole gluten thing now, right? We've got to be really careful when we have a church meal to mark the dishes that have gluten and those that don't, right? Totally different, but it's a matter of accommodating other people. And it's not just a matter of accommodating those who can eat and those who can't, but, you know, if, if you can handle gluten and somebody else can't, and you know their kids really, really, really want to power down the bread and they can't, don't sit there in front of them and shove it in your, you know, that's wrong. Be considerate. Have some consideration, right? That can be accommodated. So with a little bit of, you know, effort and some charity, these three groups can get along fine. But there's a fourth group that doesn't get along. They can actually take any one of the three previous positions, but they add one thing to it. They say, no meat from the market, other meat's okay, and you should do the same thing. Or they say, no meat at all, and you should do the same thing. Or they say, hey, grow up, get over it, we can eat meat, and you should do the same thing. That's the group 
and it come from any perspective. You can even probably add more to this list. But they take the additional step of saying, listen, if you just saw things the way I do, if you had the knowledge and understanding that I do, you would understand how you should act like me. That's where the division in the church comes from. It can be any one of these groups insisting that their way is the only way, that everybody should be that way. And that is where the division comes. There's a conflict in this church body. And they write to Paul about it. Paul, what do we have to do? How do we resolve this? Well, Paul, as usual, doesn't just jump in the middle, you know, put on his black and white shirt, throw the flag, blow the whistle, you're wrong, you're right, that settles it. We wish he would, right? It would make things so much easier. But we tried that before, and it's a dead end. Paul, as he usually does, steps into the situation and he moves the issue to the bigger picture. What are the core issues that are involved? So Paul says in verse 1, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. Paul begins by establishing a crucial, crucial distinction that has nothing to do with the food. It has everything to do with attitude. He said, we all have knowledge, we all have information, we all have all this good stuff we know, but what does that do? It makes arrogant. We've talked about this word for several weeks. What does it mean? To puff up. Like the blowfish, right? And the blowfish, when he puffs up, what, what happens? He becomes more toxic. He triples his toxicity to others, and he becomes so toxic that he even becomes toxic to himself, right? Knowledge has that effect, he says. It puffs us up. Love, on the other hand, builds us up. And that is the distinction that Paul uses moving through this passage. Anytime our position on any issue, and we're not talking about clear-cut issues you know, of where the Scripture is black and white. Those issues are deal. This is a matter of conscience that this church is struggling with. How do I in conscience? Notice how often in the text Paul uses the word conscience. We'll talk more about that. These are matters of conscience. When we're struggling with matters of conscience, we need to be very careful. Right? Anytime our position with regards to a matter of conscience is based on what I know, we've talked so much about that word already in the Corinthian letter. It was a whole, it was a whole school of heretical thinking. It would come to be called Gnosticism as we got later into the first and the end in the second century, and it was all based on how important what I know is and the dualism that that resulted in between, between flesh and mind or flesh and spirit, that whole situation, they got all, it's all based in knowledge, what I know, what I know. Anytime that's the basis of our declaration, we need to be very careful, especially if we're telling other people what they need to do. We're in a very dangerous place, right? So let's follow the apostles' reasoning. Verse 2, he says, the only knowledge that really counts is knowing God and being known by Him. That's reinforced, reinforced rather in verse 3. In verses 4 through 6, we've already read them, Paul steps into the actual argument of meat, and verses 4, 5, and 6 sound like he's siding with the let's all eat meat crowd, right? We know these demons are nothing, we know these idols are nothing, we know these temples are nothing, so yeah, let's all eat. But then in the very next breath, in verses 7 through 13, the rest of the chapter, he affirms and reinforces the argument of the other group. What's he saying? 
there's reason to agree with either group. Both groups, all three groups, have a reasonable line of thinking they have followed. Nobody's being a nutcase here. He honors and he affirms everyone's matter of thinking. But then he adds the issue, verses 7 through 13, of the weaker brother. The weaker brother whose conscience is violated and who's caused to stumble by someone eating meat. Now, who's the weaker brother? We're always really quick to think the weaker brother must be a new convert. Mm -mm. Text doesn't say that at all. The text describes the weaker brother who's used to eat the idea of the idol until now. And the terminology suggests they may have been thinking that way. This may be a person that was one of the first people saved in the church. They just haven't gotten over this issue yet. So it isn't just necessarily a new believer. It's anyone who is still struggling with this issue of, I don't know what to do with the whole issue of meat. That I don't want to get caught up in idolatry. Especially if they were out of the Jewish group, because idolatry is what had caused Israel to be dragged off to Babylon in the first place. And the aversion to idolatry is overwhelming in that community, as it should be. So whether they were Jewish or they were just of, of that intellectual bent, the aversion to idolatry created a real issue for people, and they weren't entirely wrong. So you have a brother or a sister that's still on the bubble, they still don't know how to resolve this. Paul is saying, have some consideration for that person. Because if you look at verses 11, 12, and 13, if you do not, if you by your conduct, let's go ahead and read verses 11, 12, and 13. Um, start with verse 10. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things offered to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. So even though what you're doing may be entirely reasonable in your understanding and with your knowledge, because you cause a brother or a sister in Christ to violate their own conscience and stumble into sin, you're guilty of sinning, not just against them, but against Christ. This is some heavy-duty stuff, right? We need to be careful. We need to be careful, right? Verse 13, Paul offers his own position, and it sounds pretty extreme. He said, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. A couple things to note about Paul's position. It has a sense of finality about it, but it's not the final word. In fact, he's going to pick it up again in chapter 10. We'll look at that really, really quickly. But the other thing to note about Paul's statement is, Paul says, I will not. That's what he does. Paul says, based on my understanding, this is what I do. And I leave it to you to figure out what you'll do. See, Paul's not going to step into that group that based upon what he knows to be the case is going to dictate to somebody else what they should do. He's not going to violate his own teaching. Paul respects that we each have to process this stuff. right? So what does all this mean? Again, not just for us, but we need to start with the Corinthians. How were they supposed to interpret this, right? Um, does it mean we should all be like groups A or B, really restrictive, you know, based on what Paul said in verse 13, never eat meat, don't touch meat. Um, is Paul actually going over to the most extreme position. No, he's not. Paul's position is a little more complicated than that, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But what we can say Paul is saying is this, and this is where it really starts to have some teeth for us. 
the first thing that Paul tells us is that conscience counts. Conscience counts. Throughout the passage, Paul refers again and again to honor and respecting our conscience, ours and that of others. James writes this way about conscience, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. To knowingly violate our conscience, regardless of how somebody else feels about it, to knowingly violate our conscience is sin. But Paul would also add to act in such a way that you cause a brother or sister to violate their conscience is equally sin. We need to be careful of conscience because a violation of conscience, Paul says, leads to spiritual death. And if my actions causes a brother or a sister to do that, I am at least in part responsible. So we have to be careful about conscience. And the other thing is we have to be very careful about basing our actions on what we think we know. What we know. That's a dangerous word. That's a dangerous word. Because that's where the division in the church starts. And it's not based on whether or not your knowledge is right or wrong. You can be perfectly right and still be wrong. Because knowledge, Paul says, has an inflationary effect. You know, I am blessed to know some really, really smart people. Sometimes I'm amazed at the people that God has given me the opportunity to interact with and talk with. And um, I, talk to, I talk to a lot of smart people. But you know the ones that really impress me? Are the ones who in their brilliance have retained their humility. The ones who in their brilliance retain their humility. That's the person that will be my counselor. Because knowledge in and of itself, Paul says, has an inflationary effect. Because it invariably moves us towards pride, and pride always acts in direct opposition to love. It is the most destructive influence we can allow. There were people in the Corinthian church who were obviously not motivated by love. They were motivated by what they knew, by knowledge. You know, in, in this whole matter that we have dealt with, the whole issue of, of, of COVID, it's not just a matter of whether you're motivated by Christian love or not. It's how you get to the opinion you hold about the expression of Christian love. Otherwise, how could we have so many people in the body of Christ who are in agreement on the issue of, well, we need to act in Christian love, and yet totally in disagreement about what we should do? In agreement, we must act based on Christian love. Our actions must reflect Christian love. But at the same time, be in disagreement as to what that's going to look like. It's because we, got, we processed the information differently. And the minute we start to say, I know what we should do, there's an arrogance in that that acts in direct opposition to Christian love. Let's just take a minute and put this in the greater context of the letter itself. And it's so important on this issue because Paul's not finished on this issue. All, and we're not going to go into detail. We'll cover it over the next two weeks. All of chapter 9, Paul takes this very issue of acting out of love, not out of self-interest, keeping our pride in check, and he applies the whole thing to himself. Now, you can miss that because he doesn't talk about food once in the letter. He talks about totally different issues, but it's the same material. He's going to explain it in 9. And then in verse 10, chapter 10, he will return to the issue of food 
as he clarifies that issue, remember I talked about the whole idea that when you go in the temple, you sit down and you, and you slaughter the animal and you pour out the blood and you share a meal with the deity? Do you see there's room for confusion between that and this? It is the Lord's table, the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul's got some straightening out in their thinking too. He doesn't want to get those mixed up. So he returns to the issue of food. And in that chapter, he says, hey, if you want to go to the temple, or if you want to go to the meat market and buy the food and buy the meat, eat it, go for it. But there's somebody else there that will stumble because of what you do. Then don't do it. He makes it entirely practical. Do in the moment what is the best for the people that are there. Be considerate of your brother. Right? He's not laying down hard, fast rules. What he's doing is setting priorities. And that is what guides us when we're in a situation like the present situation where there are matters of conscience. The answers aren't clear-cut. We've got different people in the body of Christ that have different thoughts or different opinions, and they're all reasonable. How do we navigate that? We navigate that through priorities, right? And that's my concern in the present situation. But you know what? Not just the present situation, because after we get past COVID, whether it's COVID Delta or whatever, there's going to be other stuff, right? There always is something, right? We need to act out of Christian love, but how do we get there? What does it look like, right? Well, we establish priorities, and the first priority is simple. We look to the welfare of others first. Jesus did it consistently. The Apostle Paul modeled it. That's what chapter 9 is going to be about. It's absolutely foundational to our faith to look to the welfare of others. He said it in verse 9 of this chapter. Take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He affirms the importance of the liberty we have in Christ, but he prioritizes the eternal well-being of others. Look to the welfare of others. Second thing, conscience counts. Conscience is so important. We neglect it to our peril. We neglect our conscience to our peril. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 18 and 19. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping, this word gets important, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. You neglect faith. And notice he puts faith and conscience together. That's pretty good company. You neglect that, you run the potential of running shipwreck in your faith. Prioritize faith. It counts, right? And then the last one is, <clears throat> watch out for arrogance. You know, knowledge makes arrogance, but love edifies. And the thing about knowledge, arrogance and knowledge, it can be so subtle. It can even mask itself as virtue. You can be saying almost anything. It can be the most lovely thing in the world, but if it comes from a place of knowledge, of arrogance and pride, it is death to our souls. And I think the other thing to remember is this is written to a church, not an individual. All this stuff in here is plural. Like when he says, you know, be on guard for, you know, take care lest this liberty of yours, that's plural. He's talking to a body of believers. That is so important. We like to resolve all these issues on an individual level. That's really dangerous. Because that's not how Paul expresses it. No, it's written to the church. This is a matter for the church collectively to process. This is a big deal. 
Because we as a body and as individuals are going to continue to face questions, whether it's COVID or other stuff. And sometimes the answers are just not easy. And sometimes the answers aren't anything that's going to make everybody happy. Well, you get used to that, right? But it's vital, it's absolutely vital that we respond in a way that's rooted in a genuine pursuit of biblical truth, respects the different conclusions that different people draw, reinforces our commitment to one another, and effectively expresses the love of Christ. Effectively expresses the love of Christ, and we can only do that in the body. It takes a body of believers, yes, acting individually, but it takes a body to sort that out. The challenges that we face, they're not going to go away. I know we've shared before, and I'll, I'll close with this. We've shared before that when Joyce and I first got to Greece, the very first time we got there, we went there for two weeks just to check things out before we made the big move. And we, um, we landed right in the middle of youth camp, and we were staying at the youth camp. So our arrival was right from the airport to youth camp. And we both were just slammed by jet lag. It was bad, and especially hit, hit Joyce really bad. And we're sitting there. It's about 8 o'clock at night, and there's this, there's this lovely young Greek uh, lady, and she's, she's translating for Joyce, and Joyce is killing herself trying to stay awake listening to the lady, and they're going back and forth. And they just kind of bonded through the, the challenge of that moment. And they found that they were both preacher's kids. And they had kind of an instant bonding, both pastor's kids. And then, of course, the question inevitably became, the young lady from Greece said to Joyce, well, where's your dad pastor at? Where's your parents pastor? And she said, Homer, Alaska. And Joyce asked her, and where do your folks pastor? And she said, Corinth. That was weird. Yeah. And then in just a moment, she said, same church, same problems. Now, I don't think she meant they were still going to the meat market and struggling with whether or not to buy meat because it had been offered to the, because the pagan altars, they weren't operating anymore, right? What was she talking about? The same issue of navigating the challenges, of responding to the difficult issues of the world, and resisting that, this is Greece, right? That horrible influence that knowledge and pride work into our way of thinking. The only way we can do that is through the strength of the body of Christ working together. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, and um. Look, God, it would be so much easier if we just had, you know, really simple answers and we always knew exactly what to do. And, um, you know, if we could just pick up the phone and call heaven and say, okay, God, what do I do here? Um, and got just a real simple answer, but we don't. And Father, I genuinely believe you have left these matters in our hands. So as we negotiate and navigate and, and talk with one another and work through the process of how do we respond, Lord? And then after we responded, openly talk with one another, how did we respond, and how can we respond better, whatever the challenge may be, Father. I believe that something happens when we do that, Father, in a, in a genuine spirit of love, looking out for the welfare of others, of humility, putting our pride and our ego and our, our knowledge aside, Lord. When we do that, there is a strength that occurs within the body of Christ, Father, that I guess we don't get to any other way. So I simply pray, Father, as we go through the challenges we face and continue to face, Lord, that our dependence would be upon you and that our hearts would be, Father, wholly after you to do your will and to truly walk in the love that you've expressed to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.